All it takes is a click to listen to RTI Online. Get exercise for your finger and exercise for your mind at english.rti.org.tw. This is Radio Taiwan International. Up ahead this hour, it's Lights, Camera, Asia, and In the Spotlight. But first, we take you over to Here in Taiwan. Hello and welcome to Here in Taiwan. Today is Thursday, November 28th. I'm John Van Trieste and joining me here in the studio today, we've got Jake Chen. Hello. And Shirley Lin. Hello. Up next, a worker learns about Taiwan's overtime culture the hard way. Then an online post about food delivery workers sparks controversy. And Taiwan's quantum revolution is at hand. How researchers are using quantum technology to send coded messages. All that coming up next. Please stick around. Like many of our Asian neighbors, uh, Taiwan is a place where there is a culture of working overtime. Uh, I'm not sure who that came as a surprise to, but apparently someone. Right, okay. Well, actually, Taiwan is also a workaholic country, right? Mm -hmm. um, really, really into working. Um, there was this guy, he was at his new job just only three weeks into, you know, uh, at this company. And um, because... You know, he started with uh, not a very heavy workload. So he's able to, like, get off work at 6. And, I mean, ideally, you, you know, that's the off time, 6 o'clock. Ideally, but we say. Ideally, yeah, ideally. And But the thing is that uh, somehow this over, work overtime culture at the company made, me, made him feel like he's a sinner. So what happened was that... Um, you know, like a couple of days into his new job, uh, his um, uh, supervisor was asking, hey, how are you doing? And he was going like, oh, I'm, I'm slowly catching on. And then the supervisor kind of joked with him and said, well, haha, ha, maybe you should start working overtime. And then... Um, As it turned out, he wasn't joking. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. And then, um, you know, originally he had told his supervisor that every Wednesday um, he has to get up work on time so they can go to an English class he's taking at a Bushiban mm. or something like that. And the supervisor, you know, said, okay, I got it. You know, he understood. It seemed like he understood. But, um, but the first two weeks was actually a training um, session for newcomers. But um, he, uh, this guy had been going to the classes on time and attending every single one. And um, he was also, you know, just very attentive and everything. But uh, um, um, but then uh, on Wednesday, he figured that, well, supervisor knows that he has an English class after work. Mm -hmm. So he left exactly at six and told, you know, said goodbye to the supervisor and left. Not, no, not realizing the next day, the supervisor took him off the line group of colleagues in, hmm. you know, in their team. Yeah, that's weird. So anyway, um, he got really, uh, really nervous. So he um, kind of asked around, you know, what's going on. But he was calmed by saying that, oh, don't worry, you know, the supervisor will explain to you. Well, the next day, um, the supervisor came to him and said the first thing was, he says that um, he wants to see him to be more proactive at his job. Okay, and 
you know, the newcomer figure that, well, I mean, that's acceptable. I can understand. And I'll try to be more proactive. I'll try to, um, you know, keep up with the pace of the company. But the second point he couldn't quite agree with, and that was um, he's saying the supervisor expected him to, um, to, to bring his computer to his, his notebook with him to the new training class, the newcomer training class, to make it look like he's like, you know, like serious at his work. And, um, and um, because basically supervisors doesn't want other people from other departments to look in on the classroom and realize that they're not doing anything. They're just wasting time. They're just, you know, just uh, la- so relaxing around. Is this a tacit admission that this, is a, this whole program is a waste of time? <laughs> you know, it's funny because then the supervisor explained. He says, well, the company, you know, they designed these kind of classes not for us to be attentive in class, not to, for us to catch up with the pace of the, the company, the rest of the company is going. And it's, but, and it's not, but it's just that to show respect for the speaker, the class speaker. Okay. And, 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 um, and because at the end of the class, the training class, every single newcomer was supposed to go up to the front and kind of give him feedback, you know. And, about and what though? If they're not doing about anything. The class. What is this one of those things where like they're doing trust falls and... No, it doesn't sound like it. It seems like to be sitting at desks, but they're supposed to bring their notebook and, you know, look like they're working really hard. I'd be worried about this company at this point because this is, sounds like a sort of corporate culture where doing things for a show is more important than getting yeah. tangible results. It, it really does look that way. Which do can we be said in a lot of companies. It's true. That's do, true. Do we know what sector this company's in? By no, it doesn't say. Mm. Yeah. Probably so. not IT or finance because they're not going to survive. <laughs> not here, no one. Yeah, it doesn't mm. say. So I guess there's a reason he keeps it you know, a secret. But anyway. So what about overtime? Is he, is he dropped out of his class and no, towing the um, line? He's still you know, off the line group. Uh, up till now, and um, but then um, the supervisor has been giving him extra work, uh, and uh, he's been getting off work like not till eight or nine, hmm. actually out of obligation. Like hmm. he just has to stay up till eight p.m. or nine p.m. before he can leave, yeah. and I'm not feel shame. Sure, if the supervisor is communicating in a way that if I were in the employee shoes, I'd appreciate. Like it sounds like he or maybe it's a she is like really passive and indirect. Right. Like if I want to send you a message, I don't talk to you. I have to joke my way in. Mm. And if I want to like warn you a little bit, I don't tell you to your face. I just take you out of a line group. Like, I mean, these are grown adults like face to face. Just talk. What, what, what is so difficult? It's, it, I don't know. Uh, well, is yeah. he being paid? He's at least being paid overtime, I hope. For, um, I suppose <laughs> there are rules about so. this sort of thing, you know. That's pretty yeah. flexible here, too. I mean, <laughs> yeah. not, not I many. You know, there isn't really a specific rule, right? But, oh, well, um, you, you technically, I mean, if we really want to go with supposed, the letter of the law, yeah. you are supposed to pay employees when they work, you know, above 40-ish hours a week. But a lot of, I know a lot of companies uh, get away with, with that because the, 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 the infrastructure to enforce that nearly don't exist. Mm. So, Well, this yeah. reminds me of, um, you know, I was talking to my cousin. Um, she has been working at this Taiwanese company for 15, more than that, 15 years now. And... Uh, a lot of times, I mean, she would complain to me, you know, just like, oh, the supervisor expecting things and, you know, she'll say things, but then she doesn't explain. So all the rest of us has to ex- to guess what she means by what she's saying. And and it, apparently a lot of it is that the supervisors themselves are getting pressure from above, from the upper management that oversees them, too. So it's like it's this whole hierarchy and bureaucracy, you know, that people 
are, and that's also part of the culture, I think, is that Taiwanese people are afraid to ask questions, just like kids, you know, are afraid to ask questions in school, in class, because they think that, I don't know, they just feel, they just feel shameful about asking some stupid questions. I don't know if it's still true in, you know, the, the culture these days, but I know that it used to be, I mean, just Chinese, Taiwanese culture tends to be more on the shy side and, and um, you know, respect for the teacher is like, don't ask questions and just nod to and everything. Transfers like, understand? to the workplace. Yes, I understand. Yeah. yeah. That yeah. transfers to the workplace. So no yeah. one understands, but everyone pretends they do. <laughs> and no one's actually doing anything, but everyone's being told to bring their notebook so it looks like they are. Right. This is like an episode of, uh, what, what's that TV the show? Office? The Office, yes. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Pretty much. Well, while some people are working nine to five, or as it happens, nine to almost Whatever. nine, <laughs> other people are out on the roads delivering our food. And there's been a bit of controversy about one teacher's post about food delivery workers here in Taiwan. Yeah, um, if um, people have been following the stories, it seems like food delivery workers just can't seem to catch a break. This I mean, is recent too. Yeah, uh, in like the the latest story is to happen just a couple of days ago. Uh, I mean, in the recent months, a lot of them have been involved in accidents. Several of those cases were fatal. That prompted a bunch of, um, uh, I guess, amendments and negotiations with the company because the company, uh, the major ones, I'm not going to name any names, at this point as we as we speak, don't have any insurance uh, for uh, accidents and injuries. So. Yeah, um, that as if that is difficult enough, um, they don't really get uh, a lot of respect, at least not from this teacher. So recently, a high school teacher um, posted, and get this, the, the, the teacher didn't post it on his or her own Facebook page. Uh, the teacher went to the page of Food Panda. It's, it's, it's a fan group of Food, Food Panda, so I guess people who are involved. And then he posted a pretty lengthy complaint post there. Well, that's so he, bold. He wants yeah. people to see. He said, uh, even my um, son, uh, who is like studying really well right now, is getting interested in his job. I don't think this has a lot of uh, uh, you know future going forward, and I'm worried for the younger generation. So like you said, yeah, that's not exactly the most peaceful message posted in the most peaceful uh, group. So a lot of people uh, uh, roll back with uh, a myriad of uh, emotions, mostly negative and confrontational. Um, some said, uh, well, uh, I'm more I'm more worried about a teacher like you who look down on certain types of jobs. And uh, others said, well, there are people who graduate with good grades, you know, then you're still looking at 23 grand a year, a month for starting salary. So Which what difference does it minimum make? Minimum wage. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what difference does it make? Or you end up working uh, at a place where you are not free to like leave on time. <laughs> right. <laughs> and you're, you're told to bring a notebook so it looks like you're doing something. <laughs> yeah. So such great prospects. I know. Um, I guess I mean the teacher clearly didn't word his or her message really, really well. But I guess a lot of people took part of the message out of context, as if it's a it's a, a slide uh, it's a slide on on their profession. Well, you, you know, know, people on the internet always very rational and clear thinking. Yeah, it's it's just you know just the crowd I want to be. No, <laughs> they're very sensitive. Yeah, hmm. like sometimes intentionally so. There's that they're like the professionally offended crowd. Um, I guess that not that I agree with him or her entirely, but I guess what the teacher is trying to say that you know if you are getting good grades, then the chances of you getting say a job with a lot of good prospects, you know, good good career future, is good. That working a delivery job where you don't get any professional growth 
isn't isn't necessarily the best option. I mean, had it worded this way, then you know the response might have been milder. Well, I can understand concern about the vibe. I mean, soon they'll probably have drones delivering food to us, and that'll, like many other professions, mm. maybe go away. Especially since there are safety concerns. But yeah. I, again, I think you're right. It does come across as a bit condescending, doesn't it? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. The message does read that way. Yeah. Well, you know, um, I know about these t- food delivery. I've observed them. Um, one before when I was eating in at a restaurant and he could just be there waiting like close to half an hour for the food and then you know that they're on a time crunch right I mean oh, they yeah. could be yeah that does tell you what um, deducted these of, apps uh, do say how long it is they have to come to where you are and they're always so cheerful too yeah when they show up at my place they're always like really they they need to they, they, they're like because i don't think they get tips normally so they're rated you know, they for their attitude as well oh, that's that's timeliness and attitude and the whole thing they need to but yeah. they're working such a tedious job i mean it's really uh i i, I don't know it's just very health and not not good for it health can be dangerous as it's well. dangerous We've seen these uh accidents. And, and then rushing and that's why they get into accidents yeah. right yes yeah. you mean the company policy is that you have to get into certain time and well we do deliver, uh, uh, order a delivery service when, whenever we do the Taiwan Insider on Thursdays. Mm-hmm. That's our online program here. So we are part of and the problem. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, We're I creating do, a, a bad need here. Come to think of, I do have some complaints, but I'm not trying to say too much because on the other hand, I'm thinking that, you know, it's a hard job that they're doing. A lot so. of it's the restaurant's issue, not necessarily the yeah. delivery person's. Yeah. If something's yeah. wrong with the order, they're just delivering it to you. Like, I know. Yeah. That's no reason to give them bad feedback, you so. know. Especially if they're polite and, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've had ones like try and even help me carry stuff like, oh, this one's hot. Be careful. Uh, yeah. They're very, like, conscientious about what they do. That's so, considerate. I mean, yeah, mm-hmm. well, I think, again, it's part of the job. So yeah. uh, it may maybe not be a, a job that the teacher hopes their children, uh, children will pursue, but it's a, yeah. it's, a, it's a difficult one and it's in a th- thriving sector these days. It sounds like something out of a science fiction novel, but the future is here as it turns out. Um, A team of researchers at National Tsinghua University have unveiled a new cryptographic technique that can send secret messages using quantum technology. And uh, they've actually demonstrated this. They sent out an encrypted message outside of a laboratory setting to some colleagues at a different university, National Jiao Tong University, using a four-kilometer fiber optic cable. Now, you may think that's pretty easy to intercept. You could just tap into that or something, but that's not the case. Uh, unlike sort of conventional cryptography, which you can eavesdrop on and computers, supercomputers that are fast enough can crack it, uh, this method apparently uh, can detect hackers, theft attempts. And the reason is because, and this is a bit technical, uh, they use pulsed laser light that produces photons and on that those photons they encode binary code and um it's apparently a system that's been a technique that's based on a theory that proposed only in 2002 so not very old Mm. and uh apparently it can pick this up somehow it's got an error rate toleration of up to 2.5 percent and apparently if someone tries to steal in or listen in the error rate will exceed that and it will just i guess it doesn't say if it will stop working or what happens then but uh, apparently the U.S., China, and other countries have conducted experiments like this at different distances. But this is the first time that it's been done in Taiwan in a real-world environment. And so the team has 
plans to keep trying this out at maybe with a bit of bigger challenge factor. Um, their next goal is to use the technique to transmit encrypted keys up to 10 kilometers, and their target is the Industrial Technology Research Institute, 10 kilometers down the road. This um, sounds like something that you can be applied for, you know, in-house communication trans trans uh, transformation because, like you said, it's only four kilometers, so it has to be wired. Um, I don't know what if there's another way to do it, or they. I mean, they said okay. they use photons, which is light, right? So they need. I mean, unless they're going to like send off flashes like fireworks, I don't know how you else besides a wire that you get it that far. Uh, it has to be transmitted somehow. So um, okay, they say that. Uh, the formulas are more irregular, so unlike these technologies, these uh, ciphers that can you can crack with supercomputers, this is much more challenging. And uh, the technique, they say, will likely have applications in the financial sector and, of course, national security. Yeah, but that's pretty uh, obvious. Um, this article says that semiconductor manufacturing techniques have been pushed pretty much as far as they're going to go to their extremes. And so people say that quantum computing is going to be the next significant tech revolution. Taiwan's on it. Um, apparently, our uh, science and technology ministry has made quantum computing one of its priority areas in terms of funding. So uh, last year, they provided actually funding for this very same university, Tsinghua University, to set up their Center for Quantum Technology. So this seems to be a pretty new uh, center, too. Yeah. Um, and our deputy minister of science says that he expects the team's techniques will be eventually able to be applied at longer ranges. No word if you're going to still need wires to do that or not, but yeah. uh, it sounds pretty pretty cool. It will be interesting to see, for sure. I don't know what kind of messages they sent. Like, yeah, it must <laughs> be an awfully good, complicated one, you know? Eat at Joe's. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> You know, the unveiling of this new technology reminds me of, uh, you know, a, a historical event when they first tried a telephone, like in the 1800s. You know, they actually had a group of people waiting at one telephone station set up by Mr. Bell, the guy who invented the whole thing, mm -hmm. and then somebody else waiting. And then they had to, you know, uh, verify that the message sent and received is indeed the same message. Um, you know, clearly this one hasn't caused that much of a stir, but this seems like the next sort of technological step to to what was invented over a century ago. I bet you they're just sending office gossip back and forth. And so I said, if she was going to talk to me that way, we were going to have a problem. <laughs> <laughs> if this thing gets advanced and, and used in the in, in the public market, it could be used like text messages that way. Just oh, no, she did. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, that just about wraps up today's edition of Here in Taiwan. I'm John Van Trieste. I'm Jake Chen. And I'm Shirley Lin. Don't go anywhere just yet. Up next, it's Lights, Camera, Asia, and In the Spotlight.
Lights, Camera, Asia. A look at Asian culture and history through the lens of cinema. Hello and welcome to Lights, Camera, Asia. I'm Jake Chen. This week we'll continue our conversation with Mr. Wu Lin. He is the head of jury at TIDF, or the Taiwan International Documentary Festival. It is the largest and longest-running documentary festival in Taiwan. Last week, Mr. Lin talked about what the award is aiming to achieve, and this week we take this conversation a bit deeper and talk about the jury selection process as well as the increasingly varied formats in which documentary films are made. Staying on the subject of film selection, I've seen uh, I went through the website and I've seen some of the selections from from past years. Yes, um, some of the um, films were certainly very popular. I, you know, I could I could Google them and I could I could see the sort of the awards and accolades that they received in their respective countries. Um, there are documentary films that you guys have selected that are uh, relatively unknown, mm. um, even from their countries of origin, right? Uh, I remember one of the films was made in South Korea. Mm. It was about how Samsung uh, employees wasn't really treated right. Oh, yeah. Uh, it, it clearly an important subject matter, but it has very little sort of press coverage even, even in South Korea. Um, what goes on in the process uh, at TIDF? Like, how do you guys select? How do you guys deem which film is important oh. to, to the audience? Yeah, it's very difficult to answer uh, because we receive uh, more than 2,000 films every edition. Yeah, or uh, around the world. Mm. So we have uh, like fifteen selection members who can help us to watch films. So everyone have to watch like two hundred or three hundred films. Then we wow. have a discussion. Yeah, and it's all always take uh, like four five hours to to debate. Then we only have like uh, thirty films. Well be the shortlist in the festival okay yeah so everybody has i would say that everybody has different perspective or different concern like for me i would say maybe the point of view from the filmmakers will be the most important you mean how unique is that point of view is? yes yes okay i mean that uh, i think good documentary could make audience to rethinking the issue mm-hmm. or you uh, or to discover the reality Okay. Mm. Um, one of the this is not so much documentary, but this is a rising question in journalism in general, mm. which is um, like the popular term is fake news, but the the, the 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 sort of the serious definition of it is is highly biased views, right? Fabricated or biased views. Do you find that to be a rising issue among documentaries as well, since more and more personal voices uh, are behind the films? Like, do you find this to be an issue? Mm. I, I'm not sure, but uh, for me, everything could be documentaries, even the fictions. I mean, I mean, something we image is ba- also based on the reality. So, if we think in this way, everything could be considered as a documentary. So, we think even something we cannot see, mm-hmm. but it still exists, how the documentary could show it. Yeah, in cinema way, cinematic way. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so in that regard, sort of the line between documentary and fiction is quite blurred. Yeah. Yeah. We should. 
in some way we try to smash the border from the fiction and documentaries. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I I did read an article on on the website on essay films, which is、oh. very hard to define,、uh, and that certainly is is something.、Um, in terms of、uh, focus, you you let's get back to Taiwan for a moment. You talk about、uh, you know how Taiwanese documentary filmmakers have been fo- focusing on social issues.、Uh, I'm sure this has been a trend.、Mm. Um, What are you seeing for the upcoming festival? Like, what are the voices that you're hearing from local filmmakers?、Mm, I I don't know, but but because so f- we we still open f- open for the submission for so entries, far, yeah. yeah. So I'm not sure now, but、uh, for me, I think many I s- I notice that many young filmmakers like they they are or under thirty. Years old,、mm-hmm. they concern about the social issues very very much. Like a、uh, uh, young filmmaker called Liao Jianhua, who used a lot of archive footage in 1980s. That means there are, there were many social movement in Taiwan in that time. He used the archive footage to re-edit the film. Okay. Yeah, and also he have a two.、Uh, Main characters who involve the movement very much. So he combine these two elements. One is the real life of these two characters. One is the archive footage to make us rethinking、uh, what the society and history is. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Very very interesting. Yeah.、Um, so for let's say first time visitors, like first time goers to the festival,、um, what do you think they can expect? When they go to TIDF, <laughs> the first time in twenty twenty. Okay,、uh, I think、uh, if you are interested in Asian documentary, you can see a lot of Asian films here, because、uh, like we say, Japan and Korea and Taiwan,、uh, these three countries also、uh, have the documentary festival. But、uh, if you're thinking about Southeast Asia. It's very very difficult to hold a documentary festival there. So these films from Southeast Asia they will come to Taiwan. So it's I I think it's like a window that you can see a lot of films here. But in another way, because we try to present some experimental films and some、uh, documentary in the other form. So you if you come here as an audience, you can you can I think it would be very exciting to see. That's what different things here. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, experimentation and variety is sort of that's the theme of of the festival. Yeah. Okay. And we have a core spirit of the festival. We call reencounter reality. Reencounter reality. So, yeah. So if you come to when you go to the cinema, I think the festival will、uh, the the films will tell you something maybe you have never known before. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's uh, that's an interesting interesting theme.、Um, how long have you been involved in the festival?、Yourself? I think it's almost、uh, seven years. Yeah.、Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs>、um, so seven years. That's at least three editions of the of the biannual festival. I'm sure you've seen how to change. How do you foresee it、uh, evolve in in the future? And、uh, I don't know.、Uh, we try to. I I think the world is changing very very fast. Uh, like last year, there's a film only three minutes. It's one shot films, 
it's also in the competition. What, like one take, no edit? Yes. <laughs> okay. So I was very surprised. Wow, this one shot and very short films can still have very strong power. So maybe in the future, everyone can make films by themselves. Mm. Okay. Mm. That's certainly an interesting film. <laughs> yeah. 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 So maybe in the future, documentary could, could be more and more important for everyone, I think. Yeah. Okay. Mm. And certainly the proliferation of digital technology will, will make it easier and easier to, to access. Yeah, and, and some people will re relate reality with documentaries. Yeah. And what do you mean? I mean, some people think documentary could reflect the reality, reflect the truth. But as you know, we have not a lot of fake news in, in, yeah, in the TV, in social media. Right. So if you, I, I would say that if you, uh, if you love to watch documentary, you can recognize what is fake and what is true. Yeah, it can, it's like a training to make you understand the media. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Mm. All right. Interesting take. <laughs> uh, although, I, I, I like your definition, although one of the things you mentioned earlier is that documentary in itself could be fiction as well. Yeah. It could be something that people imagine or think of. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Mm. Um, it certainly is a very dynamic medium. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it sounds like you get a lot of work at hands to to to, to do. Yeah. Um, mm. Is there anything else you'd like to um, tell our audience? Uh, uh, we we are now we are open uh, calls for the submission. Mm -hmm. So if you have films, no matter it's good or not, I think you can just check our website and apply for the competitions and it's free and we we are looking for uh to watch more and more interesting interesting films yeah okay yeah that's very well said <laughs> yeah. yeah thank you have i covered all the bases i think so yeah. okay yeah 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 great thank you so much thank for you. your time thank you we certainly have gained a fair bit of insight from talking with mr lin however his concluding comment does leave me a little puzzled while being more open-minded in the selection process certainly is a positive sign, when he said he considers imagined scenery shot on film to be documentaries as well, that's where his argument seems to run a bit thin. Documentary films have this inherent quality of being truthful since the scenes in the movies are recorded instead of constructed. So when he and his jury expand the definition of documentary films to include movies with imagined scenarios, I think there is simply an inadequate consideration to the nature of documentary and what it really represents. Being new and radical for the sake of being new and radical while foregoing the underpinnings of the documentary genre is something that could lead to reduced credibility. And even when a documentary does follow the traditional rules, there is still the question of subjectivity. Anyone who has edited a film or just watched many films in general knows that a filmmaker can dictate a movie's perspective and voice his or her own agenda behind the camera. Choosing what to film and what not to film, what to edit in and what to leave out in the final sequence can have a drastic effect of the final movie, 
and same goes for documentaries. So while it is important to see new movies and hear new voices, the audience needs to keep in mind that at the end of the day, a documentary often presents one or several sides of the argument, and that there could be many other sides of the story that's not shown. So Wan Lin said he hopes watching documentaries could help people discern real news from fake ones. He clearly hasn't considered the possibilities that truthfulness and falsehood should be a subjective conclusion based on the words or images of a movie, not a cold, hard, indisputable truth. Thank you for listening to Lights Camera Asia. I'm Jake Chen, and next week we'll continue our coverage of the Asian gangster movies. Please stay tuned, and I'll talk to you then. Ladies and gentlemen, here's Shirley Lin with In the Spotlight. Welcome to In the Spotlight. I'm Shirley Lin, and with me in the studio today is Lydia Chang, who is the founder of Origin Yoga and Wellness, and、uh, it's actually Taipei's first yoga retreat center. And I'm going to have her explain what that means.、Um, she left Taiwan when she was a fifth grader, and then emigrated to Canada with her family. And she was there for 20 years, and then、um, she used to be an accountant. But the thing is that I think one time she was visiting Taiwan, and then anyway, something made her decide to stay. And so she's been back in Taiwan for three and a half years. Anyway, let's meet Lydia. Hi, Lydia. Hello, Shirley. Yes, good to have you. All right, so let's just start right off. I mean, what exactly is? A yoga retreat center. I mean, we've got a lot of yoga centers here in Taiwan, but you must stand out to be something different. But what does that mean? A yoga retreat is an all-inclusive. You can think of it like an all-inclusive wellness vacation. So not only you're here for the yoga,、uh, you're also here for. A yoga lifestyle experience. So that means not only we're doing yoga, we're doing meditation, we are eating healthy, organic food, and we are also practicing、uh, mindfulness in、okay. all the activities that we do, including、uh, spending time in nature. So sometimes we would take our guests out to the ocean, which we're very lucky. We're surrounded by beautiful ocean and beaches.、Um, sometimes we go hiking. And also, part of yoga retreat is connection, helping people connect with the local culture. So we also have curated experiences where、uh, visitors can come and connect with the locals here, learn about their story, and in the meantime, also get a chance to experience themselves. This sounds like everything. <laughs> yes, it <laughs> everything is. Everything that's good, as it, it's all included in this. This is amazing. Well, okay. How did you have this idea? I mean, what happened?、Uh, wellness vacation and yoga retreats is actually quite popular all around the world. Definitely in in East Asia,、um, the concept is quite not there yet. But in North America, is very popular,、oh. and in Europe and、um, South Asia as well, very popular. There's probably about more than five thousand yoga retreat centers around the world, but、oh. I guess only one in Taiwan. <laughs> <laughs> oh wow! Okay, why why did you decide to do this? I mean, you were in Canada, you were just having a good life and. And being, you know, comfortable as an accountant and making good money, I'm sure, and you, it could have well just, you know, made your living there and everything. But then, actually, my my parents, well, my dad and my brother has always been in Taiwan. Oh, only my mom and I moved to Canada because my parents separated. Oh, I see. So that's see. sort of、Got、our、it. story. Uh huh.、Um, so I left 
like you mentioned, when I was about in grade five, and um, and I spent most of my life in Canada, and I was very happy as an accountant. Like you said, <laughs> yeah. it, was, it was good money, it was a good job, and I, I had a very good life. But yoga has always been a part of my life since I was a child. Oh. Uh, so I mentioned my my parents, uh, but my first yoga teacher is actually my father. Oh, <laughs> this is getting interesting. Okay. So he, and currently he's our Zen master at the yoga retreat center. So he, he taught me yoga and meditation, probably starting at the age of 10. Uh, so that has planted a seed in me since I was very young. Um, and I didn't, for myself, didn't really get back into yoga or seriously consider yoga as a path in my life um, until probably during the time when I was studying and becoming an accountant. So I was trying to uh, pass my CPA, CA exam, um, and I was very stressed out. <laughs> so I remember my dad's teaching like, oh, you should practice meditation when you're stressed or you should focus on your breath when you're feeling stressed out. So that's when I picked up yoga again. So a chance encounters probably around 2014. Uh, my dad actually wanted to go to India to take a course and he needed a translator. So I decided to go with him. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how I became a yoga teacher, got certified in India. So you were there not just for a day or two, you were there for quite a period of time for you to get a certificate. Yes, I was there for about three months. I see. Yes. Oh, okay. But you had a, an accountant job at the time. I did. So you quit. <laughs> no, not oh. quite. So <laughs> this is how I went with my job. I basically promised work that after I go to India and come back with a teacher certificate, I can now offer yoga classes for the company. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> exactly. And that's what happened. So after I became a yoga teacher or a certified, I returned back to my corporate job and I started teaching yoga at work. And more and more, it became a very popular program. Uh, and I started doing not just physical yoga, but also mindfulness training for some of the leaders at work. And we even have weekly meditation sessions where we did it over Skype and we had, you know, people from the factories or, you know, people on the road that would Skype in just to meditate together. Really? Wow, that's amazing. People would even go to that extent to be in a class. I had a very good company, to be honest. I was very supportive uh -huh. of, of this program. Yeah. All right. So your dad has always been a yoga teacher ever since he was, maybe ever since he was young. My dad also had a kind of a transformative experience. He uh, He's always been in Taiwan, but he used to be um, in finance as well. He used to be a stockbroker. <laughs> <laughs> this is so interesting. Okay. And and uh, so I think the stress of being a stockbroker and the ups and downs of life, really, that's what got him into starting to learn yoga and meditation. Well, he didn't know any yoga then, though, until he got stressed. And then he went looking around what you should do about it. And then he thought, oh, why not try yoga, right? Was that what, what happened? When he told me that it was, you know, it was for, especially at least for yoga, a lot of people get introduced to yoga from the physical aspect first. And mm -hmm. then they become yeah. deeper involved or more interested in the spiritual side. So same thing with him. In the beginning, um, he told me he was just eating lunch at a cafe and he saw a poster for a yoga class. Oh, that was it. Okay. That was it. <laughs> he decided <laughs> to go for it. <laughs> How old were you when you started learning yoga? You just liked it from the start. No, I didn't. <laughs> it was... <laughs> I did not like yoga from the start, especially when I was 10 years old, right? You know, and back then, you have to think about this. This is maybe 20, 
30 years ago. So back then, it was not very popular. Yoga now is trendy, it's cool, everyone's doing it, everyone know what it is. And there's many, many good classes and good teachers. Mm -hmm. But back then, especially in Taiwan, yoga is not common at all. Yeah, So not at all. Exactly. And so when I went to class with my dad, for example, it was just full of old people. <laughs> it was not something I would enjoy doing. I just thought it was really boring. The classes were super long, two, three hours, minimal. I'm curious, how about your mom? I mean, did she like yoga? My mom, uh, she does like yoga. She doesn't practice it religiously like like my like my dad, dad. does. Um, she is more involved in the more uh, the meditation, the spiritual side of things. I see. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Your whole family of yoga lovers. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So anyway, you didn't like it at the beginning, mm -hmm. and it wasn't that you know that popular then. Mm -hmm. So what was it? So was it a drag? You know, going to these yoga classes with your dad then? He kind of had to drag you there. Yes. Yes, no. I would say so. Uh, but he not—he taught me not only just the physical yoga. He really emphasized also on meditation okay. and the mindfulness part and the values that comes with the yoga practice, such as looking within yourself, staying grounded no matter what, and taking time for self-reflection and staying. But you were only ten. I know. So <laughs> I didn't, really didn't get it at the time. Like, oh my god, so much lectures. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Okay. I mean, now it's profound insight, but back then I didn't appreciate it. Mm. <laughs> it was not not a pleasant. <laughs> this is so funny. Mm. Oh well, how did how long did you persevere? I mean, I guess you didn't have a choice, right? You, you just had to. I mean, your dad didn't give you any choice. You just had to go. And then what happened? I mean, eventually you start liking it, right? How? Why? Yes, exactly. Well, I think back then, even though I didn't like it, I went along with it. And eventually it did made an impression on me. So I knew it was something valuable. I just didn't get it at the time. Uh -huh. And I picked how, it how up again. How did it make an impression on you? How? I think just because you're forced to, I was forced to do it. <laughs> <laughs> I was forced to wake up at five in the morning and go to the oh, beach gosh, and like sit there. Five in the morning. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And watch the sunrise. You're listening to In the Spotlight with Shirley Lin. Okay, you just touched on a point here. You said the beach. You mm -hmm. said the sunrise. Okay, apparently, what, three and a half years ago, you came back visiting um, Taiwan. And when you're talking about the beach and everything, because that's where your house used to be, the mm -hmm. place where you used to, where you grew up. It's right by the beach. And you asked me if I know that place, Bai Sa Wan, you know, the White yes. Sand Bay, whatever. Yes. Um, I know that place. I mean, I've always gone there for swimming with another family. And it's all great because it's not usually crowded. And that's why we like that beach, you know. But anyway, so you used to live there. Yes. Yeah. And so anyway, you went visiting. And actually for 20 years, you were saying, no, you should tell the story. <laughs> All right. So my because my dad was a teacher, I think he always preferred being outside of the city. He always oh. enjoyed being closer to nature. So at some point when he was visiting also by Shawan, and for those who are familiar with Taipei or have lived there for a while, you're right. It is probably the closest beach to Taipei. It's really mm. not that far. It's only within an hour drive. Oh, yeah. So he saw this big complex of abandoned building. And oh. there's about 200 units. And that building is actually quite iconic. It's been around for about 50 years. It used to be owned by a lot, many of the wealthy, uh, rich and famous people of Taiwan. It's their vacation home. Oh, okay. Uh, I didn't know. Okay. 
somehow it became abandoned not overnight but over time um, a lot of people some people immigrated outside and maybe just the idea of a vacation home never caught on so eventually all the units were abandoned so when my dad got there you know the the place is really run down it still is run down today oh it is still abandoned <laughs> but um he fell in love with it you know, mm. he, he really saw it as a, as a perfect place for yoga and meditation, especially because it's right by the beach. The location is really amazing. You can see, you can get like a pan, panoramic view of the ocean oh, from the yeah. inside. He really saw that building as a reflection of, of what, he's, what he's teaching as well as learning about yoga and spirituality is the fact that it doesn't matter what, how it is on the outside. It could be very ugly or rustic, but it's that inward journey that matters going inside and working on yourself. So you can glow from within. Uh, that that's what matter most. So he saw that building as very symbolic, and eventually he decided to uproot my whole family and move to the beach. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you guys were living in the city then? Yes. Before prior to that? Oh, I see. Yes. I see. I see. Okay. So now that place is your yoga retreat center. How big is it? So there's four floors, and we've got our di- a dining space, a yoga oh. space, and then we've got enough Sounds room. Sounds really big. It's quite big. Uh-huh. Enough room for about, um, comfortably, we can fit a group of maybe 14 people. Lydia, you're actually a tiny woman to me. I don't know. And to think that actually you're doing such a great thing, being a founder of this whole you know, yoga retreat center, it, it really impresses me. Would you call yourself a, a real like, ambitious entrepreneur? Yes, I was. I would say so. I've I've always been ambitious in my corporate life. I can't picture you as a businesswoman. I picture you more as just like a really calm, refreshing kind of yoga teacher. I actually like to call myself a spiritual entrepreneur. <laughs> okay. okay, that's fitting. That's fitting. Yeah, that's what I'm picturing Lydia right now in front of me. And you started this yoga retreat center, and it's been three and a half years. How does the word get around? I mean, is it mostly women? who are taking classes from you, but it's not off limits to men, is it? No, no, no. Uh, to be honest, and when I first started, because we are the first yoga retreat center in Taiwan, I didn't really have a clear TA, target audience. I just wanted to open up to everyone and see who comes. And eventually it became very clear that, well, number one, yes, you're right, mostly women that, that are attractive. A lot of them are traveling uh, solo, and some are from Taipei, some are from the expat community in Taipei, um, and many actually are from outside of Taiwan. So I, I would oh. say close to 70% of our guests right now come from outside of Taiwan. So what do you mean? They traveled, they actually flew into Taiwan to come and stay at the retreat center for how, how, how many days at a, at a time? Or how many weeks at a time? I don't know. Yes. So... These guests would fly in. Our shortest program is one day, so from 9 to 5.30. Our longest is six days. So these women or guests, not just women, there's more and more men now, but initially yeah. there was mostly women. Uh, but these guests would fly in from the major cities around Taiwan, such as Hong Kong, Shanghai, Singapore, Malaysia, like those places those are probably accounting for 50 percent of our guests and then the rest of the 30 percent are uh tourists or uh people also from europe north america australia we have guests from probably more than 40 different countries definitely tune in next week to hear more from lydia chang and this first yoga retreat center in taiwan for in the spotlight i'm shirley lin
Thank you for listening to Radio Taiwan International, broadcasting from Taipei, Taiwan. Check out our website at english.rti.org.tw. Again, that's english.rti.org.tw for the latest news and features from Taiwan. You can also listen to our programs and watch videos as well. Our 60-minute English language program can also be heard every day at the following times and frequencies. In southern China and South Asia from 1600 to 1700 UTC on 6180 kHz. Again, that's in southern China and South Asia from 1600 to 1700 UTC on 6180 kHz. And in Southeast Asia from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kHz. Again, that's in Southeast Asia from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kHz. We'd love to hear from you. Please send your comments to P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Again, that's P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Or send an email to rti at rti.org.tw. Again, that's rti at rti.org.tw. Also visit us on Facebook. The address is fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International. Once again, on Facebook, we're located at fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International for videos, photos, and news of interest from Taiwan. Thank you once again for listening to Radio Taiwan International.